and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Prospero. Only one thing is certain in this life. One day we'll leave the world and our friends and family behind, hopefully after a long, healthy life. But death and losing a loved one is something we don't really learn how to deal with or cope with until we're knocked sideways. Linda Magistris founded the Good Grief Trust a few years after she lost her partner, BAFTA-winning director Graham Theakston, to a rare cancer in 2014. To use former Prime Minister Theresa May's words in a Downing Street honour, from a devastating personal tragedy, Linda has created a tremendous force for good. The trust is run for the bereaved by the bereaved, people who understand loss and can offer some light and gentle guidance and support at what is often such a difficult time. And the charity brings other bereavement organisations together under one umbrella. Actors like Dame Penelope Wilton, Greg Wise and Todd Carty are among some amazing supporters. And I'm delighted that Linda's joined me today to tell me more. Linda, it's great to meet you. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I've been following the Good Grief Trust on Instagram for quite a while now and thinking it would be lovely to invite you on to hear your story. But let's start off, if we may, with what is Good Grief? The Good Grief Trust is a charity that I started in 2016. So it's an umbrella charity. We've brought over 900 charities, support services, helplines, groups, all under one umbrella. And it was after I'd lost my partner, Graham, back in 2014, two years before I started the charity, that that really kicked this off for me really and drove me to start something that would help people find what we call help and hope in one place. And is that what we mean by good grief as well? Because obviously grief is often a very sad and sometimes a lonely time. But when you feel supported, is that what you mean by good grief? Yes, obviously losing somebody that you love or someone you had a really strong connection with, it can be absolutely catastrophic to your life. So what we want to try and do is find the best way forward, really. It's never going to be good losing somebody that you love, obviously, but we want to be able to find a positive positive way to live your life after a bereavement that can shatter every element of your whole life. And I also called it Good Grief because my partner was called Graham Theakston. So I wanted to get GT because he used to be known as GT. So that's why we got the Good Grief Trust. So yeah, we wanted a positive way of trying to let people know that although the worst thing has happened in their life, by connecting with other people and support services, you can find a way to navigate your way through. And it is funny, isn't it, Linda, that as I said in the introduction, it's going to happen to all of us and we're all going to experience loss as well of loved ones. Yet we're not really briefed on how to even deal with anything. It's not anything we learn about at school. And once it hits us, it hits us like a truck sometimes, doesn't it? Well, exactly. We don't learn about it at school. And again, that's part of our work at the Good Grief Trust is to try and raise awareness. One of our ambassadors, Greg Wise, who is incredible, he lost his sister, Claire, he says, we're all in childish denial. You know, I think we are of everything, really, of dying, of death, of bereavement. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's the final taboo, if you like. But thankfully, we've now got to grips with talking about our mind, our health, our mindfulness. But going forward, I think bereavement and grief and loss, particularly post-COVID, is now the time to speak about that. Thankfully, COVID is probably the only good thing that it did is shine a light on the impact of losing somebody and 
sadly, we lost hundreds of thousands of people during the pandemic. But now is the time to do it. Now is the time to get to grips with grief and loss because it can have so many detrimental effects, but it doesn't need to, as long as we can find that support and a way through it. The story of how and why you set up the trust is so personal, Linda. Tell me a bit about Graham and also how you first met. So yes, so I was in a program called Grange Hill. For those who don't know, it was an iconic children's program back in the 70s. It ran for about 30 years and I was a child actor. And that's where I met Graham. He was one of our hotshot directors and he came in and worked with us for a couple of years. We were all kids and he was sort of new to the business. Then he went off and he won a BAFTA. He worked in the business for about 30 years and I never saw him. And then I came out of my marriage and he came out of his long-term relationship and we just happened to meet. I was in Wandsworth, he was in Wimbledon and there was Graham Thigston after 30 years. I couldn't believe it. And we went for lunch and that was it. We were together for eight years and it was just a wonderful time. But yeah, so sadly, after eight years, he started his arm, actually his left arm. He was left-handed. He was starting to go into writing. He directed. He won BAFTAs. He was going into writing film scripts. But sadly, he was started to get numb. Couldn't understand it. Got treatment over about a year. But it took that time to find out that he had cancer. Suddenly, I was picking him up after just a general test. And they said that he had a tumour. And it was a rare soft tissue sarcoma. And they gave him about 18 months, two years to live. And he died after five and a half months. So it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. Oh, my goodness. It must have been a terrible shock. And I think you'd had eight really smashing years, hadn't you, after reconnecting. It's funny you mentioned Grain Chill. I mean, I can still hear the music to Grain Chill. So I must <laughs> I must have watched you, Linda. Yeah, I must have watched you in, in Grain Chill. I was, mm. as a child, I was absolutely hooked on the program. But you had wonderful times with him. And I think I'm right in saying that when you did bump into each other again hadn't you been living just around the corner literally from each 10 other? minutes it was crazy for 20 odd years 10 minutes around the corner and I'd been in that village probably you know every week as he had and we'd never met each other it was just clearly meant to be I think it really was meant to be and after he died the shock because I'd lost my dad I've lost my dad 23 years ago he died And that was bad enough. And he was my rock. I absolutely adored my dad. But losing Graham, losing someone very similar to my age, who, you know, I was having a life with, I had a future with. And then suddenly he died and he was in a pot on his brother-in-law's shelf. And that completely sent me somewhere that I'd never been. And I thought I was literally going crazy. We used to cycle across Wimbledon Common and I used to shout to the sky, where are you? (laughs) I just couldn't get that this person who had legs, who had arms, who had a brain, who was funny, was in a pot. And I just, for some reason, it didn't happen with my dad, but it happened with Graham. I literally thought I was going around the bend. I thought it was going crazy. So I had to go off to my GP. It changed your whole world, didn't it? Completely, completely. It didn't in any way make sense to me at all. And I just thought this has to be something that someone can help me with. So I went off to my GP and I said, look, I can't even get up off the sofa. I've been all right for about six months, actually. And I just plowed into work and then suddenly I hit a wall and I thought, no, I really need some help. I I really need to understand this and find a way forward. So he offered another charity, a big national charity. But unfortunately, it was a massive waiting list, about six to eight months where I lived in Wandsworth. So I thought I can't even wait six to eight hours. I just can't. So I had a friend who lives in Kensington and I heard that this charity did counselling. So I just lied and I said I lived in Kensington, knowing that I could get some quick 
help. And I went along and I had four sessions of counselling. I'd never used a counsellor before, never had that need. Uh, and it just didn't really help. She was lovely, but it just didn't seem to give me an opening to know where to turn, really. It was, again, I just cried my way through it, went back to the GP and I said, look, I'm really sorry, it just didn't help me. What else have you got? But there was nothing else that he knew available locally. So he offered me some sleeping tablets or antidepressants. And I'm just not anyone who even takes medication. So for me personally, it wasn't going to help. And that was it. I just walked out and I thought, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And I actually went back to the hospital where Graham was treated, which is a big London teaching hospital. And I went into the Macmillan suite downstairs and I said, oh, you know, my partner Graham was treated here and you've got all these leaflets for all these incredible cancer support groups and things. I'd really love to know if you did bereavement support nearby. And they said, well, I'm really sorry we don't do anything, but if you'd like to start a group, that would be great. And again, I thought I walked out of there and I was just absolutely bewildered as to why I wasn't being signposted to anything that could help me. So I just Googled and I Googled widow. We weren't married, but I Googled widowed, young, lost, grief. And this incredible charity came up called Widow and Young. And it was a big national charity. Thousands of people up and down the country had lost their partner under 50. So, oh my gosh, this is it. So I started doing events with them and, and we went out for dinner and bowling and drinks. And it was incredible because I found people who were normal like me, you know, but they'd lost their husband, their wife, their partner, but they found a way forward and there was hope. And that was it. So I went back to my GP and the hospitals and I said, look, this is an incredible charity. Why didn't you tell me about it? They said, we've never heard of it. And that to me was a bit of a light bulb moment, to be honest. And I thought, no, hang on. If there are big charities out there, big national organizations that can help people with specific losses and the health professionals don't have access to that, they don't have a database, they don't have the resources. That's crazy. We need to bring those amazing charities to the health professionals as well as to the bereaved. And that was it. That's where it all started. And that's where it all began. Just give us an idea of Graham's age, if you would, Linda. So we he was sixty-one when he died. He was, he was 61, sixty-one, which these yeah, days he was eleven is, is years nothing, older than me at the time. No, it's not. It's absolutely nothing. No. And grief's hard too when you lose somebody who you love very much. My dad passed away about 18 months ago and he was nearly 88. So mm. with your sensible hat on, you know, he'd had a, a wonderful life and great family, but grief's still there. So to lose somebody at 61, you know, you haven't even got the comfort of a full life because I would imagine in your mind, Graham hadn't lived the full life that everybody really deserves. Well, yes. And it doesn't really matter what age anybody dies. You know, there is no hierarchy with grief. You know, we know that now. And I know that having worked with the grief community for seven years or longer, actually, seven years with the charity. I mean, my mum's 88. Sounds like the same sort of age as your dad. But my mum lost my dad at 63 or something. And she misses him every day. She's absolutely broken hearted. And it doesn't matter because sometimes it's worse because the longer they're with you, the more you expect them to be with you. People die of a broken heart. It's an actual thing as well. Older people die of a broken heart because they cannot cope with that. So there's so much loss. There's baby loss all the way through up until, you know, as you say, the, the older generation. But it doesn't matter what it is. It's the connection and the relationship you've got with that person. For example, your cousin could be like your mum. Your best friend could be like your dad. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter whether it's a spouse, a husband, a wife, or a child. It depends on the relationship that you've got with that person as to the impact when they die. 
Every journey is unique because everybody grieves differently and everybody's situation is different. My grandfather died at 100 and my nana was 14 years younger than him, but they'd not spent a day apart in their 68 years of marriage. And 21 days later, she died of a broken heart. She, there you go. You know, so yeah. I've, I've seen that happen. And mm-hmm. I know that when you grieve somebody, granddad was my hero in life. And again, with that sensible hat on, it's like, well, 100, you don't get much better than that. But gosh, do I still miss him. And he died about 20 odd years ago. He was a wonderful character. But what I've noticed with your charity, Linda, is you cater for everybody's different loss. I suppose grief can be very different, whether it's a child or a friend or a parent or an elderly relative. And you have people on side, don't you, who've gone through these kind of losses themselves to help in every eventuality, if you like. Yes. So we have a very clear, very easy to navigate website. It actually translates as well into every language. So as soon as you land on the website, you can choose what language you want to read those pages in, which is incredibly helpful. But then you choose you've lost a child, a sibling, a friend, a parent, a partner, and then you go to that dedicated page and it has helpline specific, it has videos, it has stories and articles and books relating to that particular loss that we know is incredibly important because if you can find other people, we know that peer support is absolutely key. So if you can find other people who have been through a similar loss or you listen to their story, as we say, listening to somebody else's story can be your hope. We know that there could be hope going forward. It's incredibly vital that we signpost those people very early on to specific types of loss. So that could be baby loss, suicide, cancer, road traffic accident, trauma, whatever it is, we can signpost people to those types of organisations. Those stories, I think, must be very, very helpful and and a very good, quick starting point. You mentioned when you went to try and get some help, there was a waiting list six to eight months and you said you could barely wait six to eight hours. What's great about having these film clips on the website is they're there immediately and immediately you can feel not alone and that somebody else is sharing their story with you. I've picked out a few excerpts from your website because I really was deeply moved by them and just so impressed, Linda, by what you've got on that site, how you've brought it to life. Here's an excerpt from Carolyn Harris, MP for Swansea East, talking about the loss of her eight-year-old son, Martin. And on the ninth, we took Martin's body into church, into my church, and we had a, a small service. And the following morning, which was a Saturday, we had the funeral. All I can remember about that was kids' voices um, singing. I can remember... Um, a poem read by one of the kids, which was Footsteps in the Sand. And I can remember having Martin's photograph in my hands, and I don't remember anything else. But, I mean, since then I've heard that the church was absolutely crammed full, outside was crammed full, the, crema- the, the cemetery where Martin was buried was, was full. I never went to the cemetery, and I've never been able to go to a, a, a burial since. It must be so difficult to lose a child, Linda, and I'm guessing you've helped support a lot of people who have been in that boat. Yes, sadly. So many people lose a child. That could be through miscarriage all the way up to adult children as well. Well, obviously everything in between as well. But when 
those people who are bereaved come to us, they want to talk to other parents, other mums, other dads who have been through it. And that's where we signpost them to those specific helplines, to those charities. And often those charities and organisations are run by parents themselves who have experienced that loss. And their passion and their drive is to help other parents not go through the pain or at least try and make it more bearable, that pain, really. So, yes, there are many wonderful organisations on the Good Grief Trust website that we can signpost people to, whether you've experienced the tragic loss of a baby through miscarriage, stillbirth as a toddler, all the way up to adult childhood. If you've lost a child in adulthood, people feel as though they're not worthy of seeking support, really, because they think, oh, well, people, you know, we've only got support for children or babies, but that's absolutely not, you know, as I'm sure you appreciate, Helen, you know, your child is always your baby, no matter how old. I'm 60 and my mother's 88 and I'm her baby. It's always going to be that way. So we have to help those people find that right type of support for them and listen to those stories like Caroline Harris. It's so important to know other people have been through it. You mentioned the actor Greg Wise, who's married to Emma Thompson. And just to divert slightly, when I specialised in entertainment for a while and interviewed all the Hollywood superstars you could imagine, the only time I was stuck for words was actually meeting <laughs> Emma Thompson at a premiere. I was so in awe of her. I think she was in, it was years ago. It was probably with Greg Wise in Sense and Sensibility or something like that. And she came in and I just forgot my words. And I told her I forgot my questions. And she said, oh, don't worry about that. You were probably going to ask me this. I I was like, yes, actually, I was. <laughs> I always feel very fondly about Emma Thompson. But Greg Wise, I've noticed, is a massive supporter of yours. In fact, today I was on Instagram and he was doing a, a little clip on your socials. But he cared, didn't he, for his terminally ill sister, Claire, and has been willing to share that story, certainly with your charity. Absolutely. And we're so grateful for our ambassadors like Greg Wise and Dame Penelope Wilton, who's our patron. You know, these people have been through the pain of loss themselves. So Greg looked after his sister, Claire. He was her sole carer. She was writing a blog at the time while she was dying and died sadly before she finished it. So he picked that up and he wrote a book and it's called Not That Kind of Love. And he's got a fantastic photo of himself and Claire on the outside. And he talks about the pain of being a carer, really, which is something, again, that maybe is not acknowledged widely. The trauma, the exhaustion, the emotional and the physical trauma and pain of looking after somebody that you love so much and watching them die. But as he said, it's the most incredible privilege as well to do that and to know that you've given them the best ending you possibly can, that you've looked after them right to the end and that Claire had a coffin that was like a disco glitter ball which is why he went on to Strictly because she loved dancing so you know it's fulfilling everyone's wishes which is such a wonderful thing to be able to do so yes he's a huge supporter of ours talking about end of life talking about the reality of death and dying and how we need support those people who are bereaved but in a very natural way he talks a lot which we do as well about we put so much emphasis on the beginning of love. We could talk about it. So you have a baby, you get a pack, you get vouchers, the doctor phones up, you know, the district nurse visits, everyone's checking on you. It's all lovely, all very positive, And you've got so much support. At the end of love, at the end of life, often you can leave a hospital, you can leave a hospice, the police can knock on your door with a sudden death and they walk out and that's it. And the most tragic the most painful time, as Prince William says, the most painful time of your life, you can be alone. And that's wrong. It has to be wrong. We have to acknowledge the most precious time of life is at the end. 
And if you have the time and you are going through a terminal diagnosis or life-limiting condition and you have that time to say goodbye and friends and family have that time to try and say goodbye in the right way, that's a privilege. But it's all incredibly painful. And if there's an unexpected death through heart attack, through road traffic, etc., you haven't had that time to say goodbye. You know, there are so many elements of grief and bereavement. Just being able to know that we are all going to die and just to try and make the most of our life and support those people while we're here is the best we can possibly do. Yeah, I think so too. We've got a little clip of Greg actually. He speaks so eloquently and movingly about Claire. Here he is. There are now, uh, as far as I'm aware, 7 million people in this country, one in 10 of us who are working as carers. They are the unsung heroes of our society. Um, and I was very fortunate to be able to be with my sister over that period of time, which is, of course, a very heady combination of absolute trauma and utter privilege um, uh, knitted together, because it is a privilege being able to, to care and to, to be able to shadow someone on this um, very important uh, final journey. Um, and traumatic because you're watching a loved one die uh, and I was with her when she died and um, it was very clear that uh, very soon after that I had to make sure that my family, my wife and my daughter who were living just up the hill would come down and be part of this moment um, because these are very important moments and they're the start of being able to grieve and to understand about death um, and uh, we had a, a, a very emotionally charged few hours, just the three of us together in my sister's flat uh, with her and uh, my daughter picked some flowers in the garden and, and put them on the stand by the bed and uh, we lit candles and we all um, allowed each other to spend the time that we needed uh, with my sister before we started calling the GP and the um, the funeral home. How did you come to get Greg to be a supporter, Linda? Is he somebody you know from your showbiz connections and entertainment life? No, I just met Greg actually very randomly. There was an event at the Royal Festival Hall all about death and dying and coffins. There were all these incredible coffins. One was like a ballet shoe. One was like a train, the most amazing array of coffins. And we had a stand. We were exhibiting very early on with the charity. We've got to get out there, you know. And Greg came up and we chatted and that was it. And I think it was a time actually that Claire was either had just died or was very near. It was very poignant. It was just one of those lovely meeting of minds, I think, really. That sounds another meant to be moment. Mm. Something I'm aware of just because I have teenage children and in their schools and friendship circles, you hear more about this, suicide. And I was reading up that it's the second leading cause of death for teens and young adults, with a quarter of adults aged between 18 and 24 reported to have seriously considered taking their own life in the past month. That must be very hard as well for people to cope with and to understand for those left behind. Let's just have a little listen to Amy talking about her best friend from the age of nine who took her own life. It was just the biggest shock ever. Um, and I just remember feeling completely overwhelmed that, that she, you know, that she would, she would do something like that. 
I didn't feel angry. I know lots of people talk about feeling angry, especially with suicide. They, you know, they, they have a, a time where they feel angry with the person for doing that. But I didn't ever feel angry with her. I felt just very sad and kind of, I just wanted to make sense of it. And I suppose the only person that can help you make sense of it is the person that's not there. So you kind of are left trying to make sense of something that, you know, in your mind, you could never do. That's just a perhaps a, a different kind of grief, isn't it? And a different kind of spin that you go into when somebody's felt desperate enough and in enough pain to take their own life. Absolutely. And we know these dark months of January and February are absolutely the worst time for suicide. And we know that young people turn to self-harm. There's drug abuse, there's alcohol abuse. There's so much involved with losing somebody at that really young, very impressionable age as well. We've done a lot of work with universities as well to try and bring support into universities so that people feel as though they can talk about their grief and they can talk about that with their peers and that we make sure that we normalize it because often it's behind closed doors and that's what we don't want. You know, we want people to be able to be more open. And obviously, if you're struggling and you don't know where to turn, there are some fantastic charities. Please do look on the Good Grief Trust. You know, there are some wonderful organizations who will pick up the phone in the middle of the night, early in the morning when somebody's struggling and really talk through their feelings because we know by talking, it really can normalize those incredibly mixed emotions that we can feel, particularly at that really impressive age yeah so as well as linking up people to other national bereavement organizations and charities under your good grief umbrella presumably you're also linking up professionals so that professionals can signpost patients or people that go and see them and send them in the right direction too. It's absolutely vital. When I was doing all my research and I was running around the country after Graham died you know talking to everybody I spoke to 10 bereavement teams in trusts across the UK and they all pretty much had the same thread. They were all passionate about trying to raise awareness of bereavement support. Again, they didn't have a comprehensive resource. Now they do. They have something called the Good Grief Card. So I was passionate not only to have an online resource, but to have a tangible card that those bereavement teams, those end of life teams, the GPs, the health practitioners could hand over to that bereaved family. So we now have a condolence card that is actually with those professionals in every NHS trust in England and also over 4,000 GPs use our card and we're working our way across the four nations so that those teams, those staff members within those trusts know that they are absolutely doing the best they can for that family because often bereavement and grief and loss isn't taught to young doctors, to young nurses and then suddenly they're confronted by the most horrific scenes in their wards and A&E and, and, you know, people are losing the most precious person in their life. So they need to know where to turn. And that's where our resources come into play. But it's absolutely vital that we raise greater awareness of the impact of grief and loss with those professionals as well. I mean, we run virtual cafes. After COVID, we went online, we were running cafes out in the community, and we now even have GPs coming online who maybe have lost somebody and say, it's only since they've had their own personal experience that they understand the impact of grief. I had a couple of GPs, I remember, who'd lost their parents and came into our cafes for support because for years they'd been handing out information and saying, you know, I'm so sorry, what can we do? 
But it was only when they had their own personal experience of bereavement, they realized the depth of pain and confusion and everything that went with that. So yes, we do need to raise greater awareness. What we're also doing is working with those staff members in trusts and in hospitals, and we're putting together bereavement cafes for staff as well. So those staff feel supported. So not only if they've had their own personal bereavement, but also if they're supporting somebody within that trust or in the hospital who is going through grief and loss as well. So it's really important to support the staff as well through their own bereavement experience. Your work sounds extraordinary and it sounds like you've dedicated your world to pulling all this together almost like it was meant to be in some strange way because you've thought of everything, Linda, and you've pulled all these different areas together. What's that journey been like for you being a founder and a a CEO of what has grown into a significant and really appreciated charity? Well, it's exhausting. (laughs) Let's say that. And, you know, it's a voluntary role for me. I'm just very passionate about getting this out. And I know the urgency because 650,000 people die a year. Every minute of every day, somebody will be bereaved. And we need to just make sure that that person from day one knows that they're not alone. I felt incredibly isolated. I felt incredibly alone. I didn't think that anybody really understood my grief. And I feel that with everybody who comes to us. Many of those who come to us don't feel as though they are supported, don't feel as though their grief is even acknowledged. And we know just to have your grief acknowledged can be your lifeline. And then after that, then you look for the support. But just to have that pain acknowledged in the right way can be really, really helpful. I'm driven, really. Obviously, I'm going to have to take a step back at some point. (laughs) But we're very lucky with the Good Grief Trust because we have a wonderful team. I have an incredible set of people who are passionate, who are working hard, ambassadors, patrons, the team working with the trust ourselves. We've got some wonderful volunteers and we call ourselves, we're run by the bereaved for the bereaved. And I think that's why we have really resonated with the bereaved community. I mean, our social is is huge. It's all organic. You know, we don't spend a penny on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, except the volunteers who sit and, you know, work so hard running them. But we have, you know, over 100 and odd thousand followers and our Facebook has reached 13 million. It's just incredible. But people come to us because I think we get it. As they say in in the grief world, you, you sort of join the club that you don't want to join. We're all in it together, really. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. So what I feel very proud of with the Good Grief Trust is the achievements that we've made over these past seven years because we have some really key pioneering initiatives. So we've got the database. In the UK, we never had a database before the Good Grief Trust that brought everything together for those health professionals as well as for the bereaved. We've got this card. It's a tangible condolence card that also signposts out to tailored help and hope in one place. We have key initiatives. We've got an amazing new campaign that we've just launched, which is our Help and Hope plaques. And these are plaques that are going out on benches across the UK. It's such a simple initiative that actually was born out of Ricky Gervais's afterlife because our lovely patron, Dame Penelope Wilton, sits on a bench during that program chatting with Ricky Gervais's character, Tony, and she's lost her husband he's lost his wife and they chat and they connect in the community which again we know is such a wonderful thing to do for people who are bereaved i want you to live tony not just not kill yourself or wait patiently for death but live live your life as if there's no tomorrow and then you wake up and there is a tomorrow and you do it again you still talk to him 
every day. Not just here, everywhere. <laughs> I don't get funny looks at home though. So I thought, oh, if you can have a bench and a plaque on it that had a QR code that would signpost immediately and find where they need to go wherever they live. And that could be out in the Outer Hebrides, in the city centres, wherever they are. So that's another initiative that we launched last year. So, yes, it's, it's ongoing and there's been a snowballing of awareness. And as I said, post-COVID, it's so important that we now talk about grief and loss and bereavement in a really natural way and try and normalise those feelings that, that um, so many of us do experience. Dame Penelope Wilton, I think one of my favourite actresses. I loved her in Downton Abbey, but I can't remember a friend got me on to Afterlife with Ricky Gervais. I think we just binge watched it in our mm -hmm. house. What a clever programme that is, because there are moments when you just want to weep and other moments where your ribs hurt because you laugh so much. Has Afterlife, in a way, helped people talk a little bit more about grief, do you think? Because it was such a massive, well-watched programme, wasn't it? It's huge, absolutely huge. And we are so grateful to Ricky for writing such a wonderful piece that has resonated with the whole of the grief community globally as well. I think, if I'm not wrong, it's the biggest selling comedy on Netflix. I'm sure it is because he keeps telling about it. But it's just incredible because it opens up that conversation. It allows people to laugh. Just again, another campaign that we have is National Grief Awareness Week, which is the Christmas campaign. And we have lots of posters and messaging. And it often aligns with the messaging in Afterlife. And we say, you know, just because I'm smiling doesn't mean I'm not grieving. You know, he laughs, he jokes. It's very rude. It's very funny. It's very poignant. It's very sad. And that's all those emotions mixed up in grief and we should be allowed there are no rules in grief we should be able to find joy alongside pain you really should there should be no rules it's your grief and you do what you like it's your grief you need to express it the way that you need to express it so yes it's been incredibly helpful to the grief community after life yeah and how did dame penelope come to you and and why Oh, again, that was another strange thing, really. So four years ago, we launched Umbrella Day. So we're an umbrella organization. So I'm always thinking, think, think, think. I thought, oh, OK, National Umbrella Day happens on February the 10th. So about four years ago, we thought we'd launch Good Grief Umbrella Day. So we actually have umbrellas. We've got our little emblem is a little orange umbrella that we wear on our lapels. And these little orange badges are available for people because, again, they open up conversations and they raise awareness of all those incredible charities under our umbrella. So we thought, oh, let's see if Dame Penelope Wilton might very well come on board with us because we knew that she was connected with Afterlife. This was way before my Sit With Hope campaign. We knew that she was connected and one of our incredible PR consultants got in touch with her agent and just said, do you think you might come on for Umbrella Day and sit in the park with an umbrella on a bench? She said, yes. She didn't hesitate. She is just the most wonderfully giving, generous, kind, supportive woman. And she came along in a park and we did a photo shoot and that was it. And she got interviewed and, and it's grown from there. So we have National Umbrella Day happens on February the 10th every year. Because as Greg said once, when he came with Emma and we sat in St. Paul's Cathedral for National Grief Awareness Week and we had this incredible service. Grief is not just for Christmas. You know, it's not just the puppy that we just talk about National Grief Awareness Week. And we talk about it in those really difficult times of the year. Every day is difficult for those people who are grieving. 
So what we try to do at the Good Grief Trust is keep peppering those campaigns across the year so that we raise awareness all the time, really. That's great. I love your little orange umbrella. You're wearing it now on your very beautiful bright blue jacket that you're wearing. I was going to ask about the umbrella. And in fact, we're just a few days away from the umbrella, your special day with National Umbrella Day, which is fantastic. You say people grieve in different ways and people do different things. I suppose I've been on my own little journey following my dad. And sometimes when I'm on the exercise bike at the gym and I'm doing my 30 minutes of cardio at the end, I can tell that people can hear what's on my headphones. And often it's Nimrod and all these beautiful hymns from his funeral. It felt like a coronation, really. We had wonderful music. And people noticed that I've just got a big smile on my face. And I don't know why, because dad wasn't particularly religious, but playing some of the music, the music was so beautiful, just reminds me of him and just brings back nice memories. So you do things that You'd have no idea that you would do until you walk that path. Yeah, it's so important. Smells, tastes, music, everything just opens up those different emotions that we remember and the memories are so precious. I mean, they can be painful. A lot of people can't listen to music, can't listen to videos, can't watch sort of footage of those people who have died or listen to a voicemail or something early on, but some find it comforting. It's so, so particular to your own loss, what you can do. And again, it changes. One day I could listen to my dad's voice, tomorrow I couldn't. It depends how you feel. But yes, music, smells. I mean, we have lots of people who, you know, on their anniversary of their death, maybe they go and eat fish and chips on the beach, you know, because their mum or their dad or whoever it was that they've lost loved fish and chips or eat a particular cake or drink a particular wine or spray a particular perfume. It's so personal to us. And that's what's so wonderful. We can honour those people, as you said, and we can really celebrate their life. And I think that's something that I think is changing trends, maybe, maybe post-COVID as well, is that we try to now tend to celebrate people's lives in funerals and really try and express who they were as a personality and try and explain to friends and family and the wider community, you know, how important they were in our life. And I think that's wonderful. There's a lot to be celebrated because we do have to celebrate life. We do. And you are 10 years on now from losing Graham. How are you doing, Linda? How are you getting on? Well, thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm fine, actually. To be honest, the anniversaries or poignant moments when perhaps I go back to Wimbledon Village. Well, I'll never pass that cafe that we went and had coffee without thinking of Graham ever, you know, <laughs> but, but there are so many memories that come back. And people think, again, there's a lot of assumption around grief that once you get to the first year anniversary, you're going to be fine. It's all going to go away. And people, friends and family sort of say, well, it's been a year time to move on. You know, these really awful things that some people say in the best possible method, but often for the bereaved, it's really painful to hear that, particularly from friends and family. But yeah, I mean, even 10 years down the line, it's really sad. It's just so sad that he had a grandchild he never met. And so there's so much life to have been lived. But what I take out of this is the is the positivity, if I can, and and the legacy that he's left behind, really, that has made me start this charity and to bring this community together, you know, and let people know in their hundreds of thousands, really, that they're not alone and that they can find hope. And that's something that he's left behind, which really helps me, really. Oh, that is a wonderful legacy. And you have provided an awful amount of help. And it looks like there's much more help to come 
Do you feel proud, Linda? I'm sure you don't really sit down and pat yourself on the back very often, if at all. But do you feel proud how the charity's grown and what you've managed to achieve from just a tiny sort of seed of, not a tiny seed, but of your feelings? You've grown this from your feelings of nowhere really to go and get help into something huge that's helped thousands. Well, you know, we're all very busy, so you don't often get the time to sit and think. But what really gets me is that when you get emails and comments on our social from people who you have no idea who they are, you'll never meet them, but they've been helped and supported by the Good Grief Trust. And the breadth of that and the years that we've been doing that, I mean, I get comments from people saying, I lost my mom, I lost my child four or five years ago, and you've still supported me now. And you think, it is incredible. And somebody said to me very early on, you'll never know the ripple that you've created. Sorry, it makes me very emotional now. <laughs> I'm start crying. But it really does because it. You, I don't think I'll ever know and none of us will ever know in the team and you know all the ambassadors and patrons and volunteers and everybody who've been involved, not only now, but in the past to help me set this up, you know, sit at home, phone those charities and support people and you know everything that everyone's done over the years to create what I hope will be a really solid charity going forward because it's so simple. It's not rocket science. We're just human beings that need each other. So if we can just signpost people to the places that they need to go very quickly and then those experts who have been working in the field much longer than me some charities have been going 30 40 50 60 years some are very in their infancy and still doing the most incredible job but if we can just signpost people to those places that they really need very early on i know categorically with the research that we've done and the feedback that we get it can be someone's lifeline the terrible story Years ago, I saw this television program that actually Prince William, Kate and Harry were involved in. It was a BBC program called Mind Over Marathon. And they featured a woman who I now work with very closely, Rianne Mannings, who started a charity in Wales because what happened to her little boy, actually. It was years ago and her little boy, George, started to convulse in the living room. And she had two other children and she didn't know what was happening. So she took him to A&E, but very, very tragically, he died. And nobody knew why. It was just one of those things, really sadly. And she came home with a leaflet that they gave her and she put it on her table and nobody called her. Nobody followed it up, but she got on with her life. And five days after her little boy died, her husband, Paul, said, oh, I just need to go and get some fresh air. He drove to the motorway and he took his own life. Or he jumped off the bridge. Within five days, she lost her little boy, George, and her husband. And she put that down to the fact that nobody called, nobody really understood, and nobody offered her support. And that program, because what happened was they put 10 people through a marathon. And I watched that program, and Rianne got through it with knowing that now there are other people who could support her. And she drove through and got this charity sorted. And it just does incredible work in Wales, helping parents who have lost a child under 25. And that was really something that I knew I needed to stop. You know, that is just absolutely life-changing, something like that to happen. And it doesn't have to. So we know that if we offer that support very early on, that we hopefully can help those people who really, really feel at their lowest to know that there is somewhere for them to turn. So that's really, you know, something I, I feel so passionate about. And every day I'm just driven by the wonder and the kindness and the support that can be given to us all, really, if we need it and when we need it. 
And as well as recognition from the people that you've helped, it must have been lovely when Theresa May was Prime Minister to receive the Point of Light Award. Did you go to Downing Street and what was that all about? Oh, it was wonderful. I couldn't believe it. Again, I burst into tears. Actually, it was my dad who I wanted to tell, you know, because I knew that he'd be so proud of me. But yes, uh, I got the Points of Light Award from the Prime Minister, Theresa May at the time, for starting the charity and for bringing all this together. Oh, I was just so proud. I couldn't believe that because to be part of that community of award winners by the Prime Minister was pretty special. And all those things are just wonderful when you hear, you know, the Good Grief Trust mentioned in Parliament and Westminster during COVID as somewhere to turn to is amazing as well. You know, and we started the all party parliamentary group for bereavement support as well back in 2017. So we work very closely with the secretariat to that group. and We have over 150 members, MPs, peers, charities, support groups, individuals. So we're driving forward as many as those initiatives, those campaigns, those petitions as we possibly can. But fundamentally, we're a community. Fundamentally, we now know that there is somewhere to turn, which is really, really powerful, I think. If anyone is struggling to know how to support a family member or a friend, I'd love to just read this quote, which is probably one of our most shared quotes on our social. And it says, if you know someone who has lost a very important person and you're afraid to mention them because you think that that might make them sad by reminding them they died, you're not reminding them. They didn't forget that they died. What you're reminding them of is that you remember that they lived. And that's a good thing. That's a beautiful quote. Yeah, it really is. And it's something that we miss a lot as friends and family and trying to support people. We walk away. We don't know what to say. It's incredibly awkward. We don't pick up the phone because we think we might say the wrong thing. We walk across the road to avoid people because we don't want to hurt them. But that's actually the worst thing to do. Please just reach out and say, Look, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you. That's it. Turn up at the door, yeah. knock on the door, leave a lasagna, take the children out, walk the dog, whatever it is you want to do, but just don't leave that person. Just let them know that you're there for them. And that can be incredibly, incredibly helpful. That's such a lovely quote to end on. Thank you so much, Linda. We've been really fascinated to hear all about the Good Grief Trust. But I also do just have to ask you, what was it like being a child actor in Grange Hill? Was it as good fun as the programme was? Because we all wanted to go to Grange Hill School because you got into so many scrapes in those days on the TV programme. It was the best. Absolutely the best. I had a ball. Many of those friends of mine who I spent those years with on set, year after year, mucking around, you know, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm my best friends now. So Todd Carter, who played Tucker, he's our patron at the Good Grief Trust. You know, we're all very old now, but we were kids. We were 13, we were 14, we were going through all those amazing firsts. I mean, I, you know, took my bra off in Grange Hill for the first time. I was like <laughs> horrified that my script said I had to go out and we did this outdoor adventure weekend. And I thought, oh, my goodness, it's bad enough. I, I left my parents. I had a chaperone. I'd never been away from home, all those firsts. And then I had to take my bra off in front of all a whole film crew when I was about 13 behind the bushes or something, because that's what you do. And I was bullied. My character was bullied. And I was taught judo. You know, I was taught by the British champion and I did judo in Grange Hill. I can still do it now. So watch out, anybody. You know, all those incredible memories. We had the best time ever. It was strict. It's a great learning curve. But oh, my goodness, did we have fun. And we still have fun now. So we have lots of different sort of reunions, Grain Chill reunions. We had a big fundraiser, actually, for the Good Grief Trust on the 40th anniversary. 
Phil Redman came and the whole crew came, the whole cast came. It's fantastic. And all those memories on the donut at BBC at White City running around in those dressing rooms when we were kids. Oh, my goodness. We were let loose. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the best. The best. Oh, Linda, thank you so much. It's been great to chat to you today. Thank you for finding time because I know who, how busy you are. And I hope the Umbrella Day, um, which is coming up very, very soon, in a few days' time, goes really well. Hopefully, um, we've done this virtually today, but I hope at some point I'll meet you in person. So do I. Thank you so much. It's been really, really brilliant. Thank you so much for opening conversations. It's really important. Fantastic. You've been listening to Linda Magistris sharing her personal story of how and why she founded the Good Grief Trust. If you'd like any help dealing with a loss, you can follow the Good Grief Trust on socials for some fantastic advice and signposting or make direct contact through their website, goodgrieftrust.org. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another great guest, so see you then. Thank you.